in 1900, so just 123 years ago, in 1900, over 90%, 90% of all humans lived at the what the United Nations calls the, the threshold of absolute poverty. Today, it's below 9%. So that is a totally unprecedented achievement of humanity, and yet it's one that almost nobody seems to be aware of. try to understand more about socialism, what it is and what it is not. And we talk about what life was like in socialist societies and compare that to what life is like in more market-oriented societies. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. James Audison. We're going to be discussing how to conceptually think about capitalism versus socialism, specifically in this post-Soviet modern world that we live in today. James Audison is the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics at the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. He's written many books, um, among them Adam Smith's Marketplace for Life, The End of Socialism, The Essential Adam Smith, and The Essential David Hume. Um, so we'll be discussing one of his articles today, An Introduction to Socialism versus Capitalism, and Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us and to help us understand more about what socialism is and what it isn't, and perhaps shed some light on what makes socialism seem so popular today. Okay. No, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So I want to start, I think the most logical place to start um, is to kind of define what socialism is, because I know it seems like we academics use that term a bit differently than what the average person uses it in conversation. And I don't want us to be talking past each other and ignore issues that are really important to people today. Yeah, no, I think that is the place to start. And uh, maybe one way to, um, to frame it is to note that I think a lot of people use terms like capitalism and socialism in very different ways. Um, in fact, many people just use them as pejorative terms to criticize the other side, whatever it is. So if somebody calls you a socialist, that's usually not a compliment. If they call you a capitalist, that's probably not a compliment either. Um, but I think it's a fair question. And so when we see surveys, um, as you do see, of you know, younger people, millennials or younger in the United States, for example, how many of them have a favorable view of socialism? or a favorable view of capitalism, and you see you know, something like half of them claim to have a favorable view of socialism, um, you might wonder, well, what exactly is it do they have in mind when they're saying they have a favorable view of it? Um, and I think to be fair, uh, many of them are not really thinking about historical um, inst uh, instances of, uh, so, so the Soviet Union, for example, they might not know very much about it or really be thinking about that as what they have in mind. Um, and they might um, instead be thinking of things like Scandinavia, which, uh, you know, Scandinavian countries, which, by the way, have market oriented economies, um, but they combine them with a welfare state. So for some people, that's something like socialism. But uh, to get to the definition of it uh, or the definition of these terms. So the, hist the, the traditional definition of socialism is the public ownership of the means of production. So that was Karl Marx's definition. Um, so instead of having private property, what you have is property that is commonly owned or publicly owned. 
um, and that typically means everything from labor to um, to manufacturing, um, you know, to to uh, to firms. Um, the socialist view is that these things, in order to be oriented in the right sorts of directions, according to the socialist worldview, need to be organized centrally, and that typically means there has to be a relatively expansive and authoritative state uh, or government um, that will um, that will take. Uh, responsibility for both the direction and um, and the effects of of um, all of the resources in society, um, and then capitalism, on the other hand, is uh, usually taken to be something like um, based on a strong or robust protection of private property, so allowing people to have private property, um, and then a market economy emerges when people buy, sell, trade, etc., their their private property, including themselves and their own labor. Um, but one of the things that I would mention, if you, if I could have just one other minute about that, yeah, uh, absolutely, um, is, um, you know, there aren't many people in the world today who are advocating, a, you know, complete public ownership of all resources. So in that, you know, kind of Marxian sense, there aren't many uh, advocates of that. Um, but what I think might be a more relevant uh, criterion to think about is um, when we're considering the economic decisions that are made in a country, let's say, pick your country or in a state or a region, territory, um, um, the, the question of, well, who is making the economic decisions? Um, is it individuals making those decisions for themselves or in their own cases? Um, or is it a centralized body or group of people or maybe centralized experts that are making more of the decisions? Um, and if you think about a continuum from on one, on one side, um, basically all or maybe all economic decisions being made by individuals themselves for their own uh, for themselves in their own cases um, that we might uh, you know think of as being a completely decentralized economy um, and then on the other end of the spectrum is um, a, a, a society in which all of the economic decisions are being made by some centralized authority or group um, of experts or somebody in the government that's a completely centralized authority so if we think about that, most countries fall, most territories fall somewhere on that spectrum, um, but that does enable us to, to have um, at least a criterion that maybe both sides um, would be willing to accept because you can think about um, decisions that are, you know, or, or uh, political economic uh, institutions that are more centrally or more decentrally inclined. Um, and then I call those um, socialist inclined um, capitalist inclined. So maybe not, you know, fully at one end of the spectrum or the other, but they do give you some idea of who's making the economic decisions. And that might be a criterion that we can actually use uh, to have a conversation with all or both sides of, uh, of, a, uh, of this uh, deb uh, debate. Yeah, that's a nice criterion that allows us to kind of examine these uh, systems kind of empirically and kind of see you know, which, which side of the spectrum does a little bit better when it comes to facilitating human flourishing, which I hope we get to talk about a little bit later. Yeah. So one thing that was really striking that you had mentioned um, is that fully half of all Gen Z Americans, so those born between the 1990s and, and 2010s, uh, that they approve of socialism. Yeah. And so when when pushed, you know, what does it mean to them? What kind of things are they thinking about? Yeah, great question. Um, and I think if you look at the polling and look, look a little bit, you know, th the way questions are framed uh, makes a really big difference in people's response to them as uh, you being a social scientist you know how that works. Uh, so framing makes a big difference. Um, but I think many people, um, 
especially younger people think that you know they associate they have certain connotations that they associate with these terms like socialism so they tend to think that something like socialism amounts to or is principally informed by care for the poor uh, so if you care for the poor you're leaning in the socialist direction whereas if you don't care for the poor maybe you're leaning in the capitalist direction um, and then on the other side you know what do people think about capitalism they tend to think of it as being um, a view that encourages people to think about themselves and only themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, I want to get what I want to get mine and I don't really care what happens to anybody else. So if, if those are your two options, we want to care about other people or we don't care about other people. Well, uh, many people are going to pick the first and not the second. And I think that explains a lot of it, frankly. You know, um, and, you know, the other piece of that, too, I think, is that when these questions are asked of people who are living in relatively wealthy, you know, in Western world, including the United States, Canada, places like that, um, where you know they're living in countries that historically are extreme, extremely wealthy, you know, compared with historical standards or even contemporary standards in other parts of the world, um, I think they can be forgiven um, if they aren't really cognizant of what exactly. Well, first of all, how unusual that is, and how rare. Um, and unprecedented the wealth that we enjoy today is and unprecedented in human history. Uh, but also for thinking, thinking hard about, well, what are the institutions that allowed this anomalous situation to arise? Uh, and I think many younger people tend to think that things like increasing prosperity, the next iPhone, they all just sort of happen naturally. Of course, they're just going to keep technological innovation just keeps happening. Um, and it's because it's happened their whole lives. So they think it's just sort of the natural way of the world. And so many of them don't spend a lot of time thinking about, well, um, you know, there are places where there isn't that kind of prosperity increase and there, where there isn't technological innovation. And there have been a lot of times in human history when that didn't exist. So what's the difference? Um, you know, what really are the institutions that have caused the difference? So many of them just don't think about that. And I think that's in a way kind of a privilege of wealth. If you're already wealthy, then maybe you don't think about, well, what are the institutional requirements that might innate that are required to enable people who aren't already wealthy to become wealthy um, don't think about it as much and I think that that factors into it as well to what degree do you think um, just kind of the timing where they're born right it's happening it happened after the fall of you know the Berlin Wall after the collapse of the Soviet Union yep. right? I was young whenever those things happened but I still have memories of that and it wasn't so distant for me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, think about this. So college students, you know, students who are starting college today um, not only have no living memory of the Soviet Union, they, they, they don't even have a living memory of 9-11 when 9-11 happened. So, so, you know, these things are all just part of the past. And, you know, so sometimes I think, you know, I half jokingly say, well, you know, if you say to students something like, um, you know, um, well, uh, think about the when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Well, or if you don't ask them, if they don't know, you don't tell them what year it happened. You say, when did the Berlin Wall fell? Well, they, you know, they'll say, well, I don't know. Were there togas then, or were you know steam engines? Like they, they don't really have it. It's all just a big amalgam of the past, which uh, makes me feel very old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. I also, I'm old enough to remember uh, people talking about how that would never happen. It was inconceivable. Um, and I'm not quite old enough, but old, but, I, but I'm close to being old enough to remember when people were talking about the Soviet Union being the way of the future, that they had figured it out. They had unlocked some kind of secret 
um, you know, magic sauce or something that um, would enable increasing prosperity centrally uh, organized and everybody was getting better off, you know, more or less equally. So I remember all of that. Uh, but I think for a lot of, yeah, you're right. For a lot of young people, these are just not living memories for them. And so they don't spend a lot of time learning about the Soviet Union or, you know, the Cold War. They just don't know much about it. And so some of the countries that they have in mind, like the Scandinavian countries, um, I don't know that they realize that a lot of those countries are are more economically free than than even the U.S. at, at different time periods. No, you're absolutely right. And as you well know, um, you know, uh, if you look at the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World Index, um, you know, countries in Scandinavia, so Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark, you know, these countries are among the most economically free. <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, so yes, they have a uh, welfare state. So they're, they're, they engage in a lot of wealth redistribution, uh, but the wealth redistribution is, um, you know, is dependent on the market economy that they embrace pretty robustly. So if you're thinking about, you know, a socialist country, those wouldn't be the ones you should actually look at. You know, you should think about things like Venezuela, North Korea, Cuba. Those are countries that have embraced, and there have been many others, but there are, those are countries that are much closer to embracing the traditional definition of socialism. So, so what are some of the other factors that you think have influenced people's fascination with socialism, right? Some of the characteristics of the real world. So in the opening of your introduction to socialism versus capitalism, you talk about how great the world really is today compared to what it looked like even just a few decades ago. Yeah. So, so what are are we missing? What's the fascination um, in in this world of abundance? What's the allure of the socialism? Yeah, it's a it, it's a great question. It's a complex question. I mean, there's no easy answer to that. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think factors into that is that um, what we hear is bad news. We almost never hear the good news. So, um, you know, in if you take, uh, so I graduated, I'll tell you how old I am. I graduated from college in 1990, which was right after the Berlin Wall fell. Um, on the day I graduated from, from college in 1990, so that was May 15th, 1990, um, the New York Times could have run a headline that said, today, 120,000 people worldwide ascended out of absolute poverty. Um, they could have, they didn't run that headline, but they could have run that headline. And in fact, they could have run that headline every single day since then to today, including today. Um, and yet never has that headline appeared. Um, so this is one of the great achievements of humanity that we've been able to, you know, in 1900, so just 123 years ago, in 1900, over 90%, 90% of all humans lived at the, what the United Nations calls the, the threshold of absolute poverty. That's about two contemporary US dollars per person per day. $2 per person per day or less. 90% of people lived at that level uh, on earth. And today it's below 9%. So that is a totally unprecedented achievement of humanity. And yet it's one that almost nobody seems to be aware of. Nobody talks about it. Nobody's aware of it. Um, and instead, what do we get? We get, um, you know, in today's globalized media world, um, if there's any kind of tragedy anywhere, that's what we hear about. And we hear about it over and over again. I mean, you know, and it's not a surprise. We have 8 billion people on the world, uh, on the planet now. Um, there are going to be problems. There are always problems. Um, and so there are going to be you know, um, weather disasters and climate problems and other, all kinds of things. 
that's what people hear. So I think what people are thinking is they're not focusing on um, you know, all of the blessings and benefits they're enjoying, partly because they don't have a sense of what it was before. They don't have any knowledge of what it was before. Um, and on the other hand, they're constantly hearing a 24-7 news cycle of all of the bad things that are going on. So they don't really uh, have a sense of just how, in how many ways we're living, um, you know, in how many ways we can measure uh, human well-being that we're better off now than we have ever been. You also mentioned um, kind of a, a folk, people focus a lot on the inequality, not the, the absolute living standards, but right. the fact that, yeah, I'm doing okay, but there's so many people doing much, much, much better than I. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a big part of it, yeah. Um, and, and well, you know, it, before 1800 or so, um, and for as much of uh, human history before that as, as we're able to either gather data or sort of extrapolate data, there was a great deal of equality. So people were relatively equal. There wasn't much difference between, uh, you know, generations or between family members. You know, you might have the pharaoh who has a lot more wealth than everybody else, but you know, it's, um, it's just the pharaoh or the pharaoh's family. The emperor has more, but um, as far as people in society, in countries, in communities, they were relatively equal. But also what we now know and what you know well is that they were relatively equally poor. So, um, you know, there was a relative level, you know, about $3 per person per day um, throughout almost all of human history for everybody. It never really changed. Um, but now what do we have? Well, we have the majority of humanity moving above that. That's the good news. They're ascending above that very low level of $3 or less per person per day. Um, but while they're ascending, um, they're ascending at different rates. And so now what we're getting is, although substantially everybody is getting better off, um, there are some who are much better off than others. Um, and in some places in the world where they began that process before other places did, um, you know, like compounding interest, you know, that that prosperity grows more and more and faster and faster. So you have not just individual you know, differences in individual wealth, but also in societies and countries. So even if it's the case um, as it is, so every region of the world, you know, taken as regions, um, they're all um, increasing in prosperity, um, but in, in real prosperity. Uh, but they're not doing it at the same rate. And I think that's something that uh, people do focus on. So, yeah, they say, well, um, sure, um, I have air conditioning in the United States and I have, you know, running water and all these things that people just completely take for granted. They didn't even think about it. If I need an MRI, I can get it tomorrow and all of these things that they think about. But then they say, well, but there's somebody who, who a billionaire who has his own private jet. OK, well, I don't have a private jet. I'm not close to having a private jet. Um, and so they see that discrepancy, that disparity, and that makes their their own um, their own blessings, their own prosperity, I think, much less salient in their minds when they see so much of what other people are able to achieve or what other people, what kinds of goods and services other people are able to buy. Yeah, that's something I, I hope we get back to um, towards the end of the conversation, because I want to think a little bit about, you know, the problems that do exist in capitalist societies and maybe useful, productive ways to think about yeah. dealing with some of those problems. Yeah. But before we do that, um, I want to hear a little bit about what you think are some of the stronger intellectual arguments in favor of socialism. So in your piece, you talk about um, G.A. Cohen's very short and very interesting book, Why Not Socialism? 
Um, I would recommend that to listeners. I'd also recommend Jason Brennan's response book, Why Not Capitalism? It's a very visually cute, um, uh, the covers are, are, make a very, very cute uh, point. Uh, the Why Not Socialism book has a single rose on it, where the Why Not Capitalism book has a whole bouquet of roses on it. Um, but what what kind of argument is Cohen making in, in favor of socialism and why might that kind of argument be appealing? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, uh, Cohen makes an argument uh, based on by appealing to a couple of moral values um, that are that have been relatively common among supporters of socialism, that there are you know, a couple of uh, moral values that the, that socialism champions um, and that um, its advocates think are jeopardized or maybe even destroyed uh, in capitalist or market-based societies. Um, so one of them is the one that we've been talking about, which is equality. Um, and so, you know, you ask about what's a strong argument for it. Um, you know, think about it like this. So that, you know, equality has been one of the main, if not the main uh, moral goal, um, so social, political, moral goal um, of socialists since Marx, at least since Marx. Um, but um, one of the ways to think about that is, well, suppose we all are, you know, uh, all human beings are equal in some moral sense. We're all equal in moral agency, or we all um, have the same uh, rights, maybe natural rights, if we believe in natural rights, um, or if you subscribe to a particular religious um, perspective, maybe you think all human beings are created equally in the image and likeness of God, something like that. If that's where we all start, um, then that seems to be a kind of baseline. Um, and I think it's an appealing claim to make. It's an attractive claim to many people to make that, well, any deviation from that therefore requires special justification. So um, if we're all in some basic or moral sense equal, then why should it be the case that some people in my country um, have a hundred times more wealth than I do or a thousand times more wealth than I do? Because we think about that increase the you know greatly increased amounts of wealth enables a kind of life that people who don't have that simply aren't um, is simply inaccessible to them so um so the moral equality that we might endorse and this is reflected in things like you know the equality before the law for example we, you know that's something that many people endorse and we should be equal before the law what's kind of implicit in that is that idea is the idea that we do have a kind of moral equality um, and then that becomes the baseline, the default. And so um, if you want to, if then you have a system of political economy that enables great inequality, then it seems already a bit suspicious. Um, and so that's one of the, I think, the driving aspects of uh, the, of the driving arguments of many socialist uh, perspectives is that we have such enormous inequality in society um, and the political and economic institutions that are part of a market-based or maybe a capitalist, if you like, um, economy, seem only to exaggerate that, or you know, they make they, they make the inequalities even even greater. Um, then that seems to be sort of inherently or right off, you know, a priori morally suspicious. Um, but I would mention one other thing. So equality, I think, is really important. But um, you asked a you asked a really good question, which is, you know, what's a strong argument in favor of socialism? I'll give you uh, one more argument that's a moral argument, not an economic argument. Cohen, when he's talking about socialism, doesn't talk about economic production. He talks. He's just talking about distribution. Um, so you know, I think that's a difficulty that faces some advocacy of socialism because we can't redistribute something that we don't have. So we have to talk about production also. 
Um, but a different kind of argument is a moral argument that we get, um, believe it or not, from, uh, um, uh, from Karl Marx fairly early in his life. He was still a young man. He was writing some essays. Um, and in one of them, he makes the following argument. He says, well, look what goes on in the actual activity of a market economy. Um, you know, suppose you're going to buy a car and you go into the car dealer. I mean, the, he wasn't talking about cars, obviously, in the 18th, in the 19th century. But um, when you go into the car dealer, you say, um, I like the car. I'm thinking I, I think I might like to buy it, but I can't pay more than twenty thousand dollars for it. But that was a lie. Um, you lied because you probably could pay more than that. You just said that. And then the dealer responds, well, we we can't take less than thirty thousand dollars for it. But that's a lie, too. And then you say, well, OK, I could go up to twenty two thousand, but that's my absolute max. And that's probably a lie. And they say, well, we could go down to twenty eight, but any less than the, any lower than that and we'll lose money. That's probably a lie, et cetera. And so the process goes. And so even if, and here I think is the nub of this argument, even if you come to an agreement, suppose you split the difference, you agree at $25,000, you pay the $25,000 to the dealer and you get the car, we can stipulate that that agreement, that final agreement was both mutually voluntary, so nobody forced anybody into it, and let's stipulate that it was mutually beneficial you agreed to it, which means you thought the car was worth more to you than the, than the money. And the, for the dealer, the reverse was true. Both sides think they benefited. But Marx says um, it could be mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial. And yet it was effectuated by lying. The whole process is lying. So really what's going on in a market economy is you succeed by manipulating other people through your lies. So you come to see the dealer or other people not as human beings with dignity that you should respect and in solidarity you should will their good also. No, no, none of that. All you do is you see them as a tool that you can manipulate to get what you want. So you know many of the arguments in favor of a market economy or favor of capitalism say, well, mutually voluntary exchanges, mutually beneficial. Marx makes this, this uh, pretty challenging argument, which says, yeah, I'll stipulate to that. But it was still brought about, effectuated through lying, which after all is a vice. It's a moral vice. And it leads us to think about others as just mere tools rather than as full human persons. I've always found his discussion of alienation really fascinating as well. And that lying kind of moving us away from our moral humanity um, kind of fits with that. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I want to turn to some of the stronger intellectual arguments against socialism. So you bring up Austrian economist F.A. Hayek. Um, you bring up something called the day two problem, which I would love to hear you talk a little bit about. So, so can you explain some of these arguments against socialism? Yeah, uh, happy to. So um, the Hayekian argument, so Hayek is a complex thinker with lots of ideas, but one of his core ideas is connected with something that I call the local knowledge argument. Um, and that is that um, if, if, you, if you assume that we live in a world of scarcity, which just means that we don't all have all the resources we would like to have to satisfy all of our goals, um, which does seem to be the, the fate of, hum, of the human condition, no matter how much we have, we would always like to have more. So if we live in a world of scarcity, what that means is that we have to make choices. Um, we, we can't do everything. So we have to uh, make choices. And when we say yes to some, to one thing, or um, that means saying no to everything else. And that's as true with thing, resources like our time as it is true with resources like our money. 
we put our money in one place, it means that same money can't go to other places. Well, so what uh, Hayek, the question Hayek raises is, well, if we want our resources to go to the most highly valued places first, and then second most highly valued second, and third most third, and so on down the line, um, let's think about the logic of that. What that means is that, first of all, we have to know what our values are. We have to have a ranked order of our priorities. Um, and we have to have a pretty comprehensive sense of what are the resources available to us. So the, the local knowledge argument, as I call it, from Hayek is to say, well, if we want to try to do that for an entire economy, imagine how much knowledge or information a central economic planner would have to have to, to be able to accomplish that for everybody in a country. Take a country like the United States, for example, 330 million people. You'd have to know everything from what are the natural, what are all the resources available, natural, technological, human, all of these resources, which, by the way, are constantly changing. Uh, but you'd also have to know everybody's preferences for everything. And, and those are also constantly changing as well. So Hayek says, well, that's just impossible. There isn't, there's no possible way any one person, however smart, it does, it's not because you're not smart enough. It's not because you're evil or something. It's just that it exceeds human capacity, any human being's capacity to know that. So if we still wanted to have a rational economic order, as he calls it, how would we do that? He says the only way we can have a chance of doing that or approximating that is by letting individuals make decisions in their own cases based on their localized knowledge of their own circumstances, their own schedules of values and the opportunities available to them. Um, and if everybody makes those kinds of decisions based on their, that's why I call it local knowledge, on, the, on their knowledge of their own localized situation, then what can emerge are prices and the prices that can emerge, in other words, you know, what are the terms of these various, these thousands, millions, billions of exchanges? Um, and then the prices then convey information that can be um, crucial for other people to make choices too. When prices go up, it tells suppliers one thing and consumers another thing. Prices go down, it tells suppliers and consumers different things. So Hayek says that the, the, the pricing mechanism um, can give us the information necessary to begin approximating a rational economic order. Um, so one of the strongest arguments, I think, in favor of a market-based economy um, is this Hayekian one that the knowledge that's required um, to make wise decisions about how to allocate our scarce resources um, can only emerge if individual people are allowed to make their own decisions in their own cases and if they themselves benefit if they make good choices and pay the cost if they make a bad choice. That's the only way we can have a hope of it. Um, without that kind of price mechanism that emerges from these freely made choices, um, there's just no hope of, of being able to decide how, um, how to organize an entire economy. That's a pretty powerful argument. He, made, he first made that way back in 1945, but um, it seems to me that that argument rem has remained powerful uh, ever since. Yes, so that the information itself doesn't actually exist in the absence of people engaging in that market setting. Exactly. Um, just like as one of my friends, Rosalino Candela says, the if you wanna observe, observe a score of a baseball game, that information doesn't exist unless there's people playing baseball. Yep. There's no way to observe it. Right, that's right, um, that's a great analogy. I think that's one of the, I love the way he put that because it, may, it makes that click in a way for me that I, I haven't had it click before. Um, so is there a, a middle of the road? 
right? Is there a middle of the road? And and I think that that middle of the road might be what Gen Z and, and younger people are, are advocating for. Um, I think you call it a softer version of socialism. Um, so, so, you know, what does that middle of the road look like? And what are some of the problems that still exist in that approach? Yeah, it's a good question. And so, you know, maybe that's what people, when they look at the Scandinavian countries, for example, they envision that as being something of a middle of the road uh, where, okay, yes, you have a market economy, but you also have a robust um, state that engages in distribution to help protect people against old age, healthcare, um, uh, poverty, et cetera, maybe for education as well. Um, so I think many people have in mind something like that as a middle road, or maybe when they think about socialism, what they're really thinking about is, well, we don't want to get rid of the, um, the production of prosperity and uh, business, et cetera. Um, but what we want to do is um, take some of its, the fruits of, those, of the successful businesses or people who are successful and maybe redirect them in, in ways that they wouldn't otherwise go, but where we should, where we think they should go to help poor people, help people with healthcare, with retirement, et cetera. Um, and I think many, you know, when people talk about a middle way, that's the sort of thing they, they have in mind. Um, what's interesting um, is that this, that this too is a kind of empirical, you know, this is empirically testable. And uh, one of the great things that the Fraser Institute has done by having um, the Economic Freedom of the World Index over decades, you know, you have we have now years and years of um, of data about this, and so what that index does, if I mean, I know you know, but if uh, some of the people watching don't know, what it does is it just ranks countries, um, all the countries you can get, they can get um, independently verifiable data um, on the basis of the extent to which their um, their political economic institutions approximate what we might call a capitalist inclined society. Um, so that spectrum we were talking about before, you know, from the um, from one end to the other, and they just rank these countries. Um, and you know that's interesting in itself. Uh, from my perspective, what's even more interesting is then we can let's look at various ways of understanding human well-being, and let's see how citizens in those countries fare on these various criteria or measurements of human well-being. Um, and what that seems to suggest, and I talk a little bit about this in uh, this this essay I wrote, but there's much more to be said about it. What that seems to suggest is that there's actually a pretty close correlation between how market-oriented your, uh, your economic institutions are and how well your citizens do on a whole range of uh, measurements of human well-being. Um, so that's everything from uh, longevity to access to health care to education attainment um, to hours of leisure time. I mean, all kinds of things we, that we can measure that economists like you can figure out and, uh, you know, get data about. Um, there, there are these significant, robust correlations across these many margins. So what does that suggest about the kind of middle way, say, or the you know, soft socialism? What it suggests is that to the extent that your country's institutions, in one way or another, um, move further away from the market-oriented, maybe a kind of Adam Smithian um, set of political institutions, um, that means that there's prosperity that your citizens could be enjoying that they're not. So you're foregoing prosperity. Um, and the further away you are, the more prosperity you're foregoing. So um, now this is, um, you know, and I think this is an important point to make. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because sometimes you know, a moral value requires sacrifice. And so you might say, well, 
I understand that this is going to cost us in prosperity, but it's in the service of something very important. Fair enough. But um, but one of the uh, one of the great um, benefits of things like the Fraser Institute and its index, uh, what that provides us is actual data. So we have a pretty good sense of what it is we're giving up, what it is uh, we're we're trading off against uh, prosperity. So, um, you know, we might say, look, we just want to have a social security system where everybody can have a secure retirement. Um, fair enough. Um, but what this data can tell you is, well, here's the amount of prosperity that you're going to have to give up to do it. Um, and maybe it's worth it, but it's not free. There is no such thing as a free lunch, alas. Uh, we still live in a, a, a world of scarcity. Um, so when people talk about soft socialism or, or, you know, or you know, middle way, somehow between capitalism and socialism, um, what I think it's important for people to think about is, well, that's going to mean that overall we're going to have lower prosperity. We will be less wealthy overall, um, but maybe that's worth it given the particular moral values that we have. Right. There's no solutions. There's just trade-offs. And so we have to think about what those trade-offs look like and if we're willing to make them. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the things, like I said, I wanted to kind of get back to, um, you do acknowledge that capitalists inclined societies, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. There are severe social problems that we still contend with. There's mental health issues, there's inequality, there's systematic inequality, um, you know, along the lines where groups that are traditionally marginalized against um, seem to not uh, do as well as, as other groups. So how do you suggest that we think about these problems in, in a productive way that maybe doesn't it encourage us to toss the baby out with the bathwater, um, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, I mean, the first part of that, you know, are capitalist inclined societies uh, sunshine and rainbows? No. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'd say just a couple of things. So one is sort of a, a framing for my entire approach to all of these issues, which is um, an argument against what, what is sometimes called ideal theory. Um, you know, I, I'm a philosopher by training and, you know, philosophers often also imagine, you know, the ideally perfect society. What would it look like if we had, um, if we could construct society from scratch and put everybody in their proper place according to the right, you know, hierarchy of virtues, et cetera. Um, societies like that aren't possible uh, for human beings because we live in an imperfect world. We have limited and imperfect knowledge. Um, we, you know, we're self-interest, we have benevolence, but it doesn't extend to everybody equally, et cetera. So there are all kinds of way, reasons why I think perfection is not possible. So one of the mistakes I think we sometimes make in talking about political economy is we imagine a perfect scenario or, or we try to construct what would a perfect society look like. And then we compare whatever we have now or we actually have to that. And of course, it, it, we find it wanting. Um, it doesn't measure up. And so we think, OK, well, what we need to do is immediately start making some changes to more closely approximate the, um, the perfect society. Uh, but I think that last step is a little tricky and even sometimes dangerous, because if perfection really isn't possible, then what we and I think it isn't, um, then what I think we should the, the right, the proper standard should be, well, what's relatively better among the various actual possibilities? Um, and that's something that I think, you know, the, the economic data can actually help us with, because then we can begin to compare and contrast all the different, I mean, hundreds, even maybe thousands of different experiments in policy and construction of governments. 
um, that you know we can see how do people actually do in these. In none of them will perfection uh, be realized, but some of them per, uh, perform and fare better than others. So back to your question now about um, you know about capitalist inclined societies. Yeah, there there are plenty of problems, and if I'm right that human beings will always be imperfect, there will always be problems. There won't ever be a time when all human problems are solved, um, and there are also some particular problems I would say of a market-based society um, that include some of the ones you mentioned. Um, you know, problems with despair and loneliness, um, maybe uh, drug overdoses and suicide. Maybe these are indicators of problems that can arise in a society like that. that's a market-based society. Um, and so there are many ways that we might address that. And I'll just mention two. One of them is a way to think about that is always ask yourself the economists, you know, the quintessential economist question, which is compared to what? So if we didn't have this um, set of political and in, uh, economic institutions, it's not that there would be no problems, it's that there would might be other problems. Well, let's compare, which are worse. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that any of them are good, but some of them might be less bad than others. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, and here I'll be a little controversial, I think, if, uh, if it's all right with you for me to be a little controversial. Um, you know, if you think about the great problems that human beings are facing now, um, climate change and sustainable use of pollution and sustainable use of resources, also various health problems, uh, COPD, heart attacks, strokes. There are plenty of problems and large scale problems that, uh, that human beings face. Well, what's one thing that could help enable us to address more and more of those, progressively more and more of those? Um, one thing that could help us address them is increasing prosperity. Um, because, you know, how do you solve climate change? Well, it's going to be through studying it, through technological innovation. Those things are expensive and cost money. How do you address health problems? Well, studying it. So education, study, technology, new drugs, new techniques, etc. All of those things are expensive. So if we live in a society in which the prosperity is growing, I think what that means is not that we get rid of those problems, but what it might do is provide us the means to be able to address progressively more of them. Um, and that, I think, is a hopeful message, a hopeful lesson from a market-based economy. Absolutely. Before we wrap up today, I want to ask, um, first, I want to ask you, is there is there anything about socialism that you want to share that we didn't get a chance to touch on? Yeah, maybe I'll just say one quick thing, um, and I'll leave it kind of as a teaser for people. Um, so one thing we did not discuss is um, whether people have a moral right to, say, their bodies and their property. Um, so when you talk about um, capitalism and socialism and economic terms, typically what we're talking about is, well, what are the consequences? What are the results of these institutions uh, or sets of institutions? Um, it's a different sort of question to say, well, even if you're so putting aside the results, do people have a right to determine various aspects of their own lives without the interference of other you know, uninvited third party interference? Um, that's a, a completely different question and a moral question that I think the data isn't going to help us with. The data is going to tell us, well, what are the likely results of different kinds of institutions? But it's not going to tell us what people have a right to do or a right to expect from others. So that's another question. So maybe the next time we have our conversation, we can delve into that a little yeah. bit. But that um, gets so, lost sometimes in these conversations. Absolutely. Um, so before we wrap up, I also wanted to ask if you had any book recommendations or, I mean, maybe some books or articles related to that last point that you just made. 
Yeah, uh, so uh, I'll make a couple, uh, maybe just two quick ones. Um, one is uh, there's a book by Adam Thierer that came out, I think the, set, the revised edition, I believe, came out in 2016. It's called Permissionless Innovation. Um, and it's specifically talking about technology, so the industry of technology. Um, but it contrasts the idea of regulation being, uh, being organized by a precautionary principle versus a permissionless innovation principle. And so that I think is very important for thinking about increasing prosperity. How should we think about people who are trying new things, who are trying to come up with new experiments, not just in technology, but in other areas too. Um, if we say, if we ask them to demonstrate in advance that whatever they're thinking about developing or bringing to market um, is safe and effective and can't harm anybody, um, that's going to be act as a significant break or a significant um, um, disincentive to new innovation, as opposed to um, having the default be the other way. Let people innovate and let them try things. Most of them will fail. That's how we get more innovation. So that's a that's a really important idea that I would recommend. Um, and uh, that's Adam Thier's uh, Permissionless Innovation. The other one I would recommend is a book by uh, Johan Norberg called Open. Um, and this is something of a, histor a history of humanity, but it talks about um, this divide among different kinds of societies between those that were open to various um, innovations and those that were closed to innovations. And those are innovations that not just economic innovations or technological innovations, but also innovations like new people. Are we open to immigrants? Um, are we open to new ideas from different religions? Are we open to um, different moral perspectives? Um, and the book shows a pretty dramatic fashion that societies that remain open, at least you know, to the extent that they're willing to entertain new ideas, um, new ways of thinking about human organization and human relations, um, they tend to do much better. Um, they tend to uh, flourish in a way that societies that, that believe we've already figured it all out and we want no more change from outside, um, those societies tend to stagnate and decline. Um, so it's a, it's a powerful story and I would recommend that as well. I love Johan Norberg's work. Um, he is one of those people who's wonderful to follow on social media because he does announce the good news, um, and how much better we're doing than we've, than we've done in the past. Um, so I'm going to have to check that out. I haven't quite gotten a chance to read open yet. Um, so thank you so much, Jim, for sharing your time and your knowledge with us and, and I hope that those who are listening uh, really enjoyed this episode and have learned as much as I have from this conversation. If you did enjoy it, make sure you come back again um, as we talk to other scholars about the realities of socialism. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, thank you, Rosemary. I really appreciate it. Great being with you. Thanks for joining us for the Realities of Socialism podcast, where we take a deep dive into the consequences of socialism as it was imposed on tens of millions of people during the 20th century. For more information, including infographics, free books, and more podcast episodes, visit realitiesofsocialism.org.